Chapter Four of the Prairie by James Fenimore Cooper. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by William Peck. With much more dismay I view the fight than those that make the fray. Merchant of Venice. The unfortunate bee hunter and his companions had become the captives of a people who might without exaggeration be called the Ishmaelites of the American deserts. From time immemorial, the hands of the Sioux have been turned against their neighbors of the prairies, and even at this day, when the influence and authority of a civilized government are beginning to be felt around them, they are considered a treacherous and dangerous race. At the period of our tale, the case was far worse. Few white men, trusting themselves in the remote and unprotected regions, where so false a tribe was known to dwell. Notwithstanding the peaceable submission of the trapper, he was quite aware of the character of the band into whose hands he had fallen. It would have been difficult, however, for the nicest judge to have determined whether fear, policy, or resignation formed the secret motive of the old man in permitting himself to be plundered as he did without a murmur. So far from opposing any remonstrance to the rude and violent manner in which his conquerors performed the customary office, he even anticipated their caputity by tendering to the chiefs such articles as he thought might prove the most acceptable. On the other hand, Paul Hover, who had been a literally a conquered man, manifested the strongest repugnance to submit to the violent liberties that were taken with his person and property. He even gave several exceedingly unequivocal demonstrations of his displeasure during the summary process, and would, more than once, have broken out in open and desperate resistance, but for the admonitions and entreaties of the trembling girl who clung to his side in a manner so dependent as to show the youth that her hopes were now placed no less on his discretion than on his disposition to serve her. The Indians had, however, no sooner deprived the captives of their arms and ammunition, and stripped them of a few articles of dress of little use, and perhaps of less value, then they appeared disposed to grant them a respite. Business of greater moment pressed on their hands, and required their attention. Another consultation of the chiefs was convened, and it was apparent, by the earnest and vehement manner of the few who spoke, that the warriors conceived their success as yet to be far from complete. "'It will be well,' whispered the trapper, who knew enough of the language he heard to comprehend perfectly the subject of the discussion. If the travelers who lie near the willow break are not awoke out of their sleep by a visit from these miscreants, they are too cunning to believe that a woman of the pale faces is to be found so far from the settlements without having a white men's inventions and comforts at hand. If they will carry the tribe of wandering Ishmael to the Rocky Mountains, said the young bee-hunter, laughing at his vexation with a sort of bitter merriment, I may forgive the rascals. "'Paul! Paul!' exclaimed his companion in a tone of reproach. "'You forget all. Think of the dreadful consequences.' "'Aye, it was thinking of what you call consequences, Ellen, that prevented me from putting the matter at once to yonder red devil, and making it a real knock-down and drag-out. Old trapper, the sin of this cowardly business lies on your shoulders. But it is no more than your daily calling, I reckon, to take men as well as beasts and snares.' "'I implore you, Paul!' to be calm, to be patient. Well, since it is your wish, Ellen, returned the youth, endeavoring to swallow his spleen, 
I will make the trial, though, as you ought to know, it is part of the religion of a Kentuckian to fret himself a little at a mischance. I fear your friends in the other bottom will not escape the eyes of the imps, continued the trapper, as coolly as though he had not heard a syllable of the intervening discourse. They sent plunder, and it would be as hard to drive a hound from his game as to throw the varmints from its trail. Is there nothing to be done? asked Ellen, in an imploring manner, which proved the sincerity of her concern. It would be an easy matter to call out in so loud a voice as to make old Ishmael dream that the wolves were among his flock, Paul replied. I can make myself heard a mile in these open fields, and his camp is but a short quarter from us. And get knocked on the head for your pains, returned the trapper. No, no, cunning must match cunning, or the hounds will murder the whole family. Murder? No, murder? Ishmael loves traveled so well that there would be no harm in his having a look at the other sea. But the old fellow is in bad condition to take the long journey. I would try a lock myself, before he should be quite murdered. His party is strong in number, and well armed. Do you think it will fight? Look here, old trapper. Few men love Ishmael Bush and his seven sledgehammer sons, less than one paw hover. But I scorn to slander even a Tennessee shotgun. There is as much of the true stand-up courage among them, as there is in any family that was ever raised in Kentuck itself. They are a long-sided and a double-jointed breed, and let me tell you that he who takes the measure of one of them on the ground must be a workman at a hug. Hiss! The savages have done their talk, and are about to set their accursed devices in motion. Let us be patient. Something may yet offer in favor of your friends. Friends? Call none of the race a friend of mine, Trapper, if you have the smallest regard for my affection. What I say in their favor is less from love than honesty. I did not know but the young woman was of the kin, returned the other, a little dryly, but no offense should be taken, where none was intended. The mouth of Paul was again stopped by the hand of Ellen, who took on herself to reply in her conciliating tones, We should be all of a family when it is in our power to serve each other. We depend entirely on your experience, honest old man, to discover the means to appraise our friends of their danger. There will be a real time of it, muttered the bee-hunter laughing, if the boys get at work in good earnest with these redskins. He was interrupted by a general movement which took place among the band. The Indians dismounted to a man, giving their horses in charge to three or four of the party, who were also entrusted with the safekeeping of the prisoners. They then formed themselves in a circle around a warrior who appeared to possess the chief authority, and at a given signal the whole array moved slowly and cautiously from the center in straight and consequently in diverging lines. Most of their dark forms were soon blended with the brown covering of the prairie, though the captives, who watched the slightest movement of their enemies with vigilant eyes, were now and then enabled to discern a human figure drawn against the horizon as someone more eager than the rest rose to his greatest height in order to extend the limits of his view. But it was not long before even these fugitive glimpses of the moving and constantly increasing circle were lost, and uncertainty and conjecture were added to apprehension. In this manner passed many anxious and weary minutes, during the close of which the listeners expected at each moment to hear the whoop of the assailants and the shrieks of the assailed, rising together on the stillness of the night. But it would seem that the search which was so evidently making was without a sufficient object, 
for at the expiration of a half-hour the different individuals of the breed began to return singly, gloomy, and sullen, like men who were disappointed. "'Our time is at hand,' observed the trapper, who noted the smallest incident or the slightest indication of hostility among the savages. "'We are now to be questioned, and if I know anything of the policy of our case, I should say it would be wise to choose one among us to hold the discourse, in order that our testimony may agree. And furthermore, if an opinion from one as old and as worthless as a hunter of fourscore is to be regarded, I would just venture to say that man should be the one most skilled in the nature of an Indian, and that he should also know something of their language. Are you acquainted with the tongue of the Sioux's friend? Swarm your own hive, returned the discontented bee-hunter. You are good at buzzing, old trapper, if you are good at nothing else. "'Tis the gift of youth to be rash and heady," the trapper calmly retorted. "'The day has been, boy, when my blood was like your own, too swift and too hot to run quietly in my veins. But what will it profit to talk of silly risk and foolish acts at this time of life? A gray head should cover a brain of reason, and not the tongue of a boaster.' "'True, true,' whispered Ellen. "'And we have other things to attend to now. Here come the Indian to put his questions.' The girl, whose apprehensions had quickened her senses, was not deceived. She was yet speaking when a tall, half-naked savage approached the spot where they stood, and after examining the whole party as closely as the dim light permitted, for more than a minute in perfect stillness, he gave the usual salutation in the harsh and guttural tones of his own language. The trapper replied as well as he could, which it seemed was sufficiently well to be understood. In order to escape the imputation of pedantry, we shall render the substance, and, so far as it is possible, the form of the dialogue that succeeded, into the English tongue. Have the pale-faces eaten their own buffaloes, and taken the skins from their own beavers? Continued the savage, allowing the usual moment of decorum to elapse, after the words of greeting, before he again spoke. That they come to count how many are left among the Pawnees? "'Some of us are here to buy, and some to sell,' returned the trapper. "'But none will follow, if they hear it is not safe to come nigh the lodge of a Sioux. "'The Sioux are thieves, and they live among the snow. "'Why do we talk of a people who are so far, when we are in the country of the Pawnees?' "'If the Pawnees are the owners of this land, then white and red are here by equal right.' Have not the pale-faces stolen enough from the red men, that you come so far to carry a lie? I have said this is a hunting-ground of my tribe. My right to be here is equal to your own, the trapper rejoined, with undisturbed coolness. I do not speak as I might. It is better to be silent. The Pawnees and the white men are brothers. But a Sioux dare not show his face in the village of the Loops. "'The Dakotas are men!' exclaimed the savage fiercely, forgetting in his anger to maintain the character he had assumed, and using the appellation of which his nation was most proud. "'The Dakotas have no fear! Speak! What brings you so far from the villages of the Pale Faces?' "'I have seen the sun rise, and set on many councils, and have heard the words of wise men. Let your chiefs come, and my mouth shall not be shut.' "'I am a great chief!' said the savage, affecting an air of offended dignity. "'Do you take me for an acid of bone? 
Wuka is a warrior often named and much believed. "'Am I a fool not to know a burnt wood Teton?' demanded the trapper, with a steadiness that did great credit to his nerves. "'Go, it is dark, and you do not see that my head is gray.' The Indian now appeared convinced that he had adopted too shallow an artifice to deceive one so practiced as the man he addressed, and he was deliberating what fiction he should next invent in order to obtain his real object when a slight commotion among the band put an end at once to all his schemes. Casting his eyes behind him, as if fearful of a speedy interruption, he said in tones much less pretending than those he had first resorted to, "'Give Wuka the milk of long knives, and he will sing your name in the ears of the great men of his tribe.' "'Go,' repeated the trapper, motioning him away with strong disgust. "'Your young men are speaking of Matori. My words are for the ears of a chief.' The savage cast a look at the other, which, notwithstanding the dim light, was sufficiently indicative of implacable hostility. He then stole away among his fellows, anxious to conceal the counterfeit he had attempted to practice, no less than the treachery he had contemplated against a fair division of the spoils, from the man named by the trapper, whom he now also knew to be approaching, by the manner in which his name passed from one to another in the band. He had hardly disappeared before a warrior of powerful frame advanced out of the dark circle and placed himself before the captives, with that high and proud bearing for which a distinguished Indian chief is ever so remarkable. He was followed by all the party who arranged themselves around his person in a deep and respectful silence. "'The earth is very large,' the chief commenced, after a pause of that true dignity which his counterfeit had so miserably affected. Why can the children of my great white father never find room on it? Some among them have heard that their friends in the prairies are in want of many things, returned the trapper, and they have come to see if it be true. Some want in their turns what the red men are willing to sell, and they come to make their friends rich with powder and blankets. Do traders cross the big river with empty hands? Our hands are empty because your young men thought we were tired, and they have lightened us off our load. They were mistaken. I am old, but I am still strong. It cannot be. Your load has fallen in the prairies. Show my young men the place that they may pick it up before the Pawnees find it. The path to the spot is crooked, and it is night. The hours come for sleep, said the trapper with a perfect composure. Bid your warriors go over yonder hill. There is water, and there is wood. Let them light their fires and sleep with warm feet. When the sun comes again, I will speak to you. A low murmur, but one that was clearly indicative of dissatisfaction, passed among the attentive listeners, and served to inform the old man that he had not been sufficiently wary in proposing a measure that he intended should notify the travelers in the break of the presence of their dangerous neighbors. Matori, however, was without betraying in the slightest degree the excitement which was so strongly exhibited by his companions, continued the discourse in the same lofty manner as before. "'I know that my friend is rich,' he said, "'that he has many warriors not far off, and that horses are plentier with him than dogs among the redskins.' "'You see my warriors and my horses?' "'What?' Has the woman the feet of a Dakota, that she can walk for thirty nights in the prairies and not fall? 
I know the red men of the woods make long marches on foot, but we, who live where the eye cannot see from one ledge to another, love our horses. The trapper now hesitated in his turn. He was perfectly aware that deception, if detected, might prove dangerous, and, for one of his pursuits and character, he was strongly troubled with an unaccommodating regard for the truth. But, recollecting that he controlled the fate of others as well as of himself, he determined to let things take their course, and to permit the Dakota chief to deceive himself if he would. "'The women of the Sioux and of the white men are not of the same wigwam,' he answered evasively. "'Would a Teton warrior make his wife greater than himself? I know he would not, and yet my ears have heard that there are lands where the councils are held by squalls.' Another slight movement in the dark circle apprised the trapper that his declaration was not received without surprise, if entirely without distrust. The chief alone seemed unmoved, nor was he disposed to relax from the loftiness and high dignity of his air. "'My white fathers who live on the Great Lakes have declared,' he said, "'that their brothers towards the rising sun are not men, and now I know they did not lie. Go!' What is a nation whose chief is a squaw? Are you the dog and not the husband of this woman? I am neither. Never did I see her face before this day. She came into the prairies because they had told her a great and generous nation called the Dakotas lived there, and she wished to look on men. The women of the pale faces, like the women of the Sioux, open their eyes to see things that are new. But she is poor, like myself and she will want corn and buffaloes if you take away the little that she and her friends still have. "'My ears listen to many wicked lies!' exclaimed the Teton warrior, in a voice so stern that it startled even his red auditors. "'Am I a woman? Has not a Dakota eyes? Tell me, white hunter, who are the men of your color that sleep near the fallen trees?' As he spoke, the indignant chief pointed in the direction of Ishmael's encampment, leaving the trapper no reason to doubt that the superior industry and sagacity of this man had effected a discovery which had eluded the search of the rest of his party. Notwithstanding his regret at an event that might prove fatal to the sleepers, and some little vexation at having been so completely outwitted in the dialogue just related, the old man continued to maintain his air of inflexible composure. "'It may be true,' he answered, "'that white men are sleeping in the prairie.' If my brother says it, it is true. But what men does trust to the generosity of the Tetons, I cannot tell. If they be strangers asleep, send your young men to wake them up, and let them say why they are here. Every pale-face has a tongue. The chief shook his head with a wild and fierce smile, answering abruptly as he turned away to put an end to the conference. The Dakotas are a wise, and Batori is their chief. He will not call to the strangers, that they may rise and speak to him with their carabines. He will whisper softly in their ears. When this is done, let the men of their own color come and awake them. As he uttered these words, and turned on his heel, a low and approving laugh passed among the dark circle, which instantly broke its order and followed him to a little distance from the stand of the captives, where those who might presume to mingle opinions with so great a warrior again gathered about him in consultation. Wooka profited by the occasion to renew his importunities, but the trapper, who had discovered how great a counterfeit he was, shook him off in displeasure. 
An end was, however, more effectually put to the annoyance of this malignant savage, by a mandate for the whole party, including men and beasts, to change their positions. The movement was made in dead silence, and with an order that would have done credit to more enlightened beings. A halt, however, was soon made, and when the captives had time to look about them, they found they were in view of the low, dark outline of the corpse, near which lay the slumbering party of Ishmael. Here another short but grave and deliberate consultation was held. The beasts, which seemed trained to such covert and silent attacks, were once more placed under the care of keepers, who, as before, were charged with the duty of watching the prisoners. The mind of the trapper was in no degree relieved from the uneasiness, which was at each instant getting a stronger possession of him, when he found Wooka was placed nearest to his own person, and as it appeared, by the air of the triumph and authority he assumed, at the head of the guard also. The savage, however, who doubtless had his secret instructions, was content for the present with making a significant gesture with his tomahawk, which menaced death to Ellen. After admonishing in this expressive manner his male captives of the fate that would instantly attend their female companion, on the slightest alarm proceeding from any of the party, he was content to maintain a rigid silence. This unexpected forbearance on the part of Wooka enabled the trapper and his two associates to give their undivided attention to the little that might be seen of the interesting movements which were passing in their front. Matori took the entire disposition of the arrangements on himself. He pointed out the precise situation he wished each individual to occupy, like one intimately acquainted with the qualifications of his respective followers, and he was obeyed with the deference and promptitude with which an Indian warrior is wont to submit to the instructions of his chief, in moments of trial. Some he dispatched to the right, and others to the left. Each man departed with the noiseless and quick step peculiar to the race, until all had assumed their allotted stations with the exception of the two chosen warriors who remained nigh the person of their leader. When the rest had disappeared, Matori turned to these select companions, and intimated by a sign that the critical moment had arrived, when the enterprise he contemplated was to be put in execution. Each man laid aside the light fowling piece, which, under the name of a carabine, he carried in virtue of his rank, and divesting himself of every article of exterior or heavy clothing, he stood resembling a dark and fierce-looking statue, in the attitude and nearly in the garb of nature. Matori assured himself of the right position of his tomahawk, felt that his knife was secure in its sheaf of skin, tightened his girdle of wampum, and saw that the lacing of his fringed and ornamental leggings was secure, and likely to offer no impediment to his exertions. Thus prepared at all points, and ready for his desperate undertaking, the Teton gave the signal to proceed. The three advanced in a line with the encampment of the travellers until, in the dim light by which they were seen, their dusky forms were nearly lost to the eyes of the prisoners. Here they paused, looking around them like men who deliberate and ponder long on the consequences before they take a desperate leap. Then, sinking together, they became lost in the grass of the prairie. It is not difficult to imagine the distress and anxiety of the different spectators of these threatening movements. Whatever might be the reasons of Ellen for entertaining those strong attachment to the family in which she has first been seen by the reader, the feelings of her sex, and, perhaps some lingering seeds of kindness, predominated. More than once she felt tempted to brave the awful and instant danger that awaited such an offence 
and to raise her feeble and, in truth, impotent voice in warning. So strong indeed, and so very natural was the inclination, that she would most probably have put it in execution, but for the often repeated, though whispered remonstrances of Paul Hover. In the breast of the young bee-hunter himself there was a singular union of emotions. His first and chiefest solicitude was certainly in behalf of his gentle and dependent companion but the sense of her danger was mingled in the breast of the reckless woodsman with a consciousness of a high and wild and by no means an unpleasant excitement though united to the immigrants by ties still less binding than those of ellen he longed to hear the crack of their rifles and had occasion offered he would gladly have been amongst the first to rush to their rescue there were in truth moments when he felt in his turn an impulse that was nearly resistless to spring forward and awake the unconscious sleepers. But a glance at Ellen would serve to recall his tottering prudence and to admonish him of the consequences. The trapper alone remained calm and observant as if nothing that involved his personal comfort or safety had occurred. His ever-moving, vigilant eyes watched the smallest change with the composure of one too long inured to scenes of danger to be easily moved and with an expression of cool determination which denoted the intention he actually harbored of profiting by the smallest oversight on the part of the captors. In the meantime, the Teton warriors had not been idle. Profiting by the high fog which grew in the bottoms, they had wormed their way through the matted grass like so many treacherous serpents stealing on their prey, until the point was gained, where an extraordinary caution became necessary to their further advance. Matari alone had occasionally elevated his dark, grim countenance above the herbage, straining his eyeballs to penetrate the gloom which skirted the border of the break. In these momentary glances he gained sufficient knowledge, added to that he had obtained in his former search, to be the perfect master of the position of his intended victims, though he was still profoundly ignorant of their numbers and of their means of defense. His efforts to possess himself of the requisite knowledge concerning these two latter and essential points were, however, completely baffled by the stillness of the camp, which lay in a quiet as deep as if it were literally a place of the dead. Too wary and distrustful to rely, in circumstances of so much doubt, on the discretion of any less firm and crafty than himself, the Dakota bade his companions remain where they lay, and pursued the adventure alone. The progress of Matari was now slow, and to one less accustomed to such a species of exercise, it would have proved painfully laborious. But the advance of the wily snake itself is not more certain or noiseless than was his approach. He drew his form, foot by foot, through the bending grass, pausing at each movement to catch the small sound that might betray any knowledge on the part of the travelers of his proximity. He succeeded, at length, in dragging himself out of the sickly light of the moon into the shadows of the break, where not only his dark person was much less liable to be seen, but where the surrounding objects became more distinctly visible to his keen and active glances. Here the Teton paused long and warily to make his observations before he ventured further, his position enabled him to bring the whole encampment with its tent, wagons, and lodges into a dark but clearly marked profile, furnishing a clue by which the practiced warrior was led to a tolerably accurate estimate of the force he was about to encounter. Still, an unnatural silence pervaded the spot, as if men suppressed even the quiet breathings of sleep in order to render the appearance of their confidence more evident. 
the chief bent his head to the earth and listened intently. He was about to raise it again, in disappointment, when the long-drawn and trembling respiration of one who slumbered imperfectly met his ear. The Indian was too well skilled in all the means of deception to become himself the victim of any common artifice. He knew the sound to be natural by its peculiar quivering, and he hesitated no longer. A man of nerves less tried than those of the fierce and conquering Matori would have been keenly sensible of all the hazard he incurred. The reputation of those hardy and powerful white adventurers, who so often penetrated the wilds inhabited by his people, was well known to him. But while he drew nigher, with the respect and caution that a brave enemy never fails to inspire, it was with the vindictive animosity of a red man, jealous and resentful of the inroads of the stranger. Turning from the line of his former route, the Teton dragged himself directly towards the margin of the thicket. When this material object was effected in safety, he arose to his seat and took a better survey of his situation. A single moment served to apprise him of the place where the unsuspecting traveller lay. The reader will readily anticipate that the savage has succeeded in gaining a dangerous proximity to one of those slothful sons of Ishmael, who were deputed to watch over the isolated encampment of the travellers. When certain that he was undiscovered, the Dakota raised his person again, and bending forward, he moved his dark visage above the face of the sleeper in that sort of wanton and subtle manner with which the reptile is seen to play about its victim before it strikes. Satisfied at length, not only of the condition, but of the character of the stranger, Matori was in the act of withdrawing his head when a slight movement of the sleeper announced the symptoms of reviving consciousness. The savage seized the knife which hung at his girdle, and in an instant it was poised above the breast of the young immigrant. Then, changing his purpose, with an action as rapid as his own flashing thoughts, he sunk back behind the trunk of the fallen tree against which the other reclined, and lay in its shadow, as dark, as motionless, and apparently as insensible as the wood itself. The slothful sentinel opened his heavy eyes, and gazing upwards for a moment at the hazy heavens, he made an extraordinary exertion, and raised his powerful frame from the support of the log. Then he looked about him, with an air of something like watchfulness suffering his dull glances to run over the misty objects of the encampment, until they finally settled on the distant and dim field of the open prairie. Meeting with nothing more attractive than the same faint outlines of swell and interval, which everywhere rose before his drowsy eyes, he changed his position so as completely to turn his back on his dangerous neighbor, and suffered his person to sink sluggishly down into its former recumbent attitude. A long, and, on the part of the Teton, an anxious and painful silence succeeded, before the deep breathing of the traveller again announced that he was indulging in his slumbers. The savage was, however, far too jealous of a counterfeit to trust to the first appearance of sleep. But the fatigues of a day of unusual toil lay too heavily on the sentinel to leave the other long in doubt. Still, the motion with which Matori again raised himself to his knees was so noiseless and guarded that even a vigilant observer might have hesitated to believe he stirred. The change was, however, at length effected, and the Dakota chief then bent again over his enemy without having produced a noise louder than that of the cottonwood leaf which fluttered at his side in the currents of the passing air. Matori now felt himself master of the sleeper's fate, at the same time that he scanned the vast proportions and athletic limbs of the youth in that sort of admiration which physical excellence seldom fails to excite in the breast of a savage, 
he coolly prepared to extinguish the principle of vitality which could alone render them formidable. After making himself sure of the seat of life, by gently removing the folds of the intervening cloth, he raised his keen weapon and was about to unite his strength and skill in the impending blow, when the young man threw his brawny arm carelessly backward, exhibiting in the action the vast volume of its muscles. The sagacious and wary Teton paused. It struck his acute faculties that sleep was less dangerous to him at that moment than even death itself might prove. The smallest noise, the agony of a struggling, with which such a frame would probably relinquish its hold of life, suggested themselves to his rapid thoughts, and were all present to his experienced senses. He looked back into the encampment, turned his head into the thicket, and glanced his glowing eyes abroad into the wild and silent prairies. Bending once more over the respited victim, he assured himself that he was sleeping heavily, and then abandoned his immediate purpose in obedience alone to the suggestions of a more crafty policy. The retreat of Matori was as still and guarded as had been his approach. He now took the direction of the encampment, stealing along the margin of the break as a cover into which he might easily plunge at the smallest alarm. The drapery of the solitary hut attracted his notice in passing. After examining the whole of its exterior, and listening with painful intensity, in order to gather counsel from his ears, the savage ventured to raise the cloth at the bottom and to thrust his dark visage beneath. It might have been a minute before the Teton chief drew back, and seated himself with the whole of his form without the linen tenement. Here he sat, seemingly brooding over his discovery for many moments, in rigid inaction. Then he resumed his crouching attitude, and once more projected his visage beyond the covering of the tent. His second visit to the interior was longer, and, if possible, more ominous than the first. But it had, like everything else, its termination, and the savage again withdrew his glaring eyes from the secrets of the place. Matori had drawn his person many yards from the spot in his slow progress towards the cluster of objects which pointed out the center of the position before he again stopped. He made another pause, and looked back at the solitary little dwelling he had left, as if doubtful whether he should not return. But the chevaux de frise of branches now lay within reach of his arm, and the very appearance of precaution it presented, as it announced the value of the effects it encircled, tempted his cupidity, and induced him to proceed. The passage of the savage, through the tender and brittle limbs of the cottonwood, could be likened only to the sinuous and noiseless winding of the reptiles which he imitated. When he had effected his object, and had taken an instant to become acquainted with the nature of the localities within the enclosure, the Teton used the precaution to open a way through which he might make a swift retreat. Then, raising himself on his feet, he stalked through the encampment like a master of evil, seeking whom and what he should first devote to his fell purposes. He had already ascertained the contents of the lodge in which were collected the woman and her young children, and had passed several gigantic frames, stretched on different piles of brush, which happily for him lay in unconscious helplessness, when he reached the spot occupied by Ishmael in person. It could not escape the sagacity of one like Matori, that he had now within his power the principal man among the travelers. He stood long hovering above the recumbent and herculean form of the immigrant, keenly debating in his own mind the chances of his enterprise, and the most effectual means of reaping its richest harvest. He sheathed the knife which, under the hasty and burning impulse of his thoughts, he had been tempted to draw, and was passing on when Ishmael turned in his lair and demanded roughly who was moving before his half-open eyes. 
Nothing short of the readiness and cunning of a savage could have evaded the crisis. Imitating the gruff tones and nearly unintelligible sounds he heard, Matori threw his body heavily on the earth and appeared to dispose himself to sleep. Though the whole movement was seen by Ishmael in a sort of stupid observation, the artifice was too bold and too admirably executed to fail. The drowsy father closed his eyes and slept heavily with this treacherous inmate in the very bosom of his family. It was necessary for the Teton to maintain the position he had taken for many long and weary minutes in order to make sure that he was no longer watched. Though his body lay so motionless, his active mind was not idle. He profited by the delay to mature a plan, which he intended should put the whole encampment, including both its effects and their proprietors, entirely at his mercy. The instant he could do so, with safety, the indefatigable savage was again in motion. He took his way towards the slight pen which contained the domestic animals, worming himself along the ground in his former subtle and guarded manner. The first animal he encountered among the beasts occasioned a long and hazardous delay. The weary creature, perhaps conscious, through its secret instinct, that in the endless wastes of the prairies its surest protector was to be found in man, was so exceedingly docile as quietly to submit to the close examination it was doomed to undergo. The hand of the wandering Teton passed over the downy coat, the meek countenance, and the slender limbs of the gentle creature, with untiring curiosity but he finally abandoned the prize, as useless in his predatory expeditions, and offering too little temptation to the appetite. As soon as, however, as he found himself among the beasts of burden, his gratification was extreme, and it was with difficulty that he restrained the customary ejaculations of pleasure that were more than once on the point of bursting from his lips. Here he lost sight of the hazards by which he had gained access to his dangerous position and the watchfulness of the wary and long-practiced warrior was momentarily forgotten in the exultation of the savage. End of chapter 4